You are listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, How God Changed the World, recorded on June the 11th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. I want to talk about uh, Mark chapter 3 today. I would encourage you to get out your map, your message application points. This sermon titled, How God Changed the World. We're going to take a look at uh, a, a small but very significant part of God's plan in changing the world. Let's look at Mark 3, verse 13 through 19 together. It says in verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is our text today. To kind of help you understand why we'd we'd spend time talking about a list of names, uh, in in fact, dedicate a whole sermon to this, what appears to be just a list of names, let me ask some important questions for you to consider. What is the New Testament? What is the New Testament? These 27 books that we have compiled for us as part of what we refer to as the Bible, what is it? And more importantly, why should we believe the message of the New Testament? Let me ask ask it another way. Why should we believe that this message is what Jesus wanted us to have? Virtually all of the New Testament is written after Jesus leaves the earth. So, So there are some people that would say that there is a man named Jesus who lived... But though he lived a good life, it was not a divine life. It was not a life worthy of all of the attention that Christians give to it, perhaps. It's the apostles, it's his followers, it's the people who came after him who fabricated all of these stories. Well, if that's the case, that has very large implications for us, doesn't it? So how can we know that this is this is really the message that Jesus wants us to have. How can we know it's true? How can we know it's what we're supposed to be building our faith on? In fact, there was, there's an effort, I believe it's, it's still ongoing today, an effort that began in the 70s uh, called the Jesus Seminar, where some liberal scholars took to task this idea that there is a historical Jesus who really lived, But what we have in the Bible is a bunch of fabrication. It's it's the result of 2,000 years of of people taking this thing too far and and adding to the story of Jesus. And so what the Jesus Seminar set out to do, what they said they set out to do, do, was to discover the historical Jesus and to remove everything else that's been added to the story. And so they literally 
as a group of scholars, mind you, liberal scholars, they don't believe any of the things that we hold to as evangelical Protestant Christians. But as scholars, they sat down with the the Gospels and they started to remove everything that seemed, uh, let's say, impossible or unlikely to have been really to have really happened to the historical Jesus. And so they break this down into categories, things that could not have possibly happened. And anything supernatural, anything miraculous, anything that that goes beyond scientific explanation they remove from the Gospels, those are things that couldn't possibly have happened. And then there's a category of things that probably didn't happen. And so they take anything that just seems, ah, I'm not so sure about that. It's possible, but it probably didn't happen. And they, and they kind of code that in a different color. And then what they're trying to do is get down to what they call the historical Jesus, the Jesus that truly existed. The problem is, is they're not really trying to get to the historical Jesus. They started out with the historical Jesus. What they're trying to do is disprove the historical Jesus. They're trying to discredit the faith of all Christians. And really, when you get down to it, if you, if you, if you follow where they want to go with that whole thing, and by the way, there's, there's just innumerable inconsistencies and illogical fallacies to what they're doing. But if you go with them where they're going, what you end up with is a guy who basically said, just treat people the way you want to be treated. The problem with their version of the historical Jesus is it's absolutely worthy of no attention whatsoever. There's nothing wrong with teaching people to be nice to one another. But it is far from worthy of what we are gathered here to do today. It's far from worthy of the devotion that we as Christians hold to as the ideal for Christian living. If, if, if Jesus did nothing more than, than live a simple life and teach this simple message that you should just be nice to other people, that you should treat them the way you wanted to be treated, let's never mention him again. There's no point to this whole Christianity thing. He came up with nothing new. He came up with nothing noteworthy. But I would contend the New Testament is the historical Jesus that Jesus is far more than a good teacher. He's far more than what they would agree to. That he is who the New Testament presents him to be. How do I come to this conclusion? Well, our text today, believe it or not, points us to the answer to that question. But before we get to the answer to that question, I want to work through this text verse by verse, but I'm going to do it in a different way. I want to do it backwards. I just feel like that, that flow, if we just start in verse 19, and then we go 18, 7, and we just work backwards, that'll give us a, a good flow for where I want us to end up at the end of this message. So we're going to come back to this whole idea of what is the New Testament, and should we believe that this is the truth about Jesus? Should we base our lives on what the New Testament says? I want to come back to that. I want to look at this list of names. Let's look at verse 19. I'll read it again. It says this simply, And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We sort of start with the end here. Judas Iscariot. Jesus has chosen his 12 closest followers. As you'll see in a few minutes, 
more than just followers. He, he chose these men for a very special purpose. And we are reminded here in this initial list in Mark 3 of who those 12 are, that one of them would betray Jesus. The reason this is so important that we remember from the beginning of Mark's gospel that Judas was there and he would later betray Jesus is because Judas plays an important part in helping Jesus accomplish what he came to do. You see the first thing on your map is this, that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die because we are sinners who need saving And Jesus saves us by going to the cross in our place. That's a good place to start. Understanding from the beginning the whole purpose of Jesus was that he came to die to save sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Sinners who need a savior who cannot be saved any other way. The message of the Bible from beginning to end end is that God is holy and that man is not. Every one of us. God is holy and man is not, yet God is loving and merciful and desires for unholy man to be made fit to dwell with the holy God. And the way that he chooses to do that is he sends one to take our place on the cross, to die for our sins, to pay the price for the sins that we have committed so that we can be made righteous and live forever with this holy God. Jesus came to die. He knows this from the very beginning. It's not as as if he has this plan to, to live long on the earth and Satan interrupts his plan with the cross. It's not as if man thwarts God's plan. It is that God's plan from the beginning was that Jesus would die. That's why he came. He came to save you. He came to take your place on the cross, to be the sacrifice on your behalf. And so we have this little reminder here in this list that Mark provides for us and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's never forget that Jesus came to be betrayed, to be abandoned, to be brutally crucified by those he came to save. This is Jesus' fate from the very beginning. And he has, let me say, no problem with this plan. I don't mean he has, he has no angst or he, he experiences no pain because of this plan. I mean that he willingly submits to this plan from the beginning. And that he chooses to be one of his apostles, one of the twelve, one of his closest followers, a man whom he knew would betray him. A man whom he knew would lead him to the cross with a kiss. This is why Jesus came. He came to die for us. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the rest of the list. Again, we're working backwards. So I hope, I hope you have your Bible open. I think it'll be nice if you can see this all together. But if you, if you go back one more verse, now verse 18, we have Andrew 
and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. We've already seen a couple of these guys. You probably re- remember Andrew as Simon Peter's brother. He's one of, the, one of the four fishermen that Jesus calls early in the Gospel of Mark to be his followers. He was there for the miraculous catch of fish. He was there when Jesus, when, when, when Jesus shows his glory through this miraculous catch. And Simon, his brother, falls down and asks the Lord to depart. And he was one of the first ones to commit himself to following Jesus. That's Andrew. We have Matthew in here. Matthew is Levi. He's our tax collector from earlier in Mark's gospel, the one whom Jesus would call out of his sinful lifestyle and out of gratitude, Matthew, or Levi, as he was also known, throws this banquet where he invites all of his friends, all of his sinner friends to come and to meet this Jesus. And then we have, we have a bunch of guys that we really don't know a whole lot about, and they don't always uh, come up a lot in the gospel. Some of them don't hardly come up at all. And then we have this guy, Simon the Zealot. Now, hopefully you stop and ask yourself here, what is a zealot? That would be a great question to ask. That's the kind of questions you should ask when you're reading the Bible. When you see something you don't know, what is that? What is a zealot? Simon was a zealot. Well, at this time, among the Jews, among the people of Israel, you you really have a couple of main groups of religious political groups. Now, of course, this is before... This whole idea of separation of church and state was very popular. So there was just, there was just your worldview, which included your religion, your beliefs about God, and your beliefs about yourself, and your beliefs about your nation. And furthermore, the Jewish people, they started out as a theocracy. And so their idea of government is very religious. It's very religious from the very beginning. And so... They have religion and politics all in one, and the two just go together. And so you've got a couple of groups during the first century. You've got the Pharisees, which we hear a lot about. These were fairly religious conservative folks. Um, Jesus clashes with them a lot. We've already seen that a bunch, even in Mark's gospel here. So we hear a lot about Pharisees. We hear a little bit about Sadducees, who apparently were enemies of the Pharisees, though they had some things in common. The Pharisees were very anti-Roman rule. The nation of Israel at this time is occupied by a a foreign ruler, the Roman Empire. The Pharisees hated that and they fought against that. that. One of the main differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Sadducees were very friendly with the Romans. They were, in a sense, they were kind of business partners. The Sadducees were were becoming very wealthy through their partnership with the Roman Empire. They had places of authority. They had very good good and high positions in the way things were set up at that time. So they kind of liked the Roman government. They're Jews, and they're fairly committed Jews, but they're also pretty friendly with the Romans. And so there's a lot of friction between those two groups. Those are your two main groups. Those are your two main religious political groups. But there's a couple other groups that are significant in the New Testament and at that time. Another group is the Essenes. The Essenes, they they held a lot in common with the Pharisees in terms of their religious views, but their approach to dealing with the, the political situation they lived in and the religious situation they lived in was to withdraw. And so the Essenes literally lived out in the wilderness to keep themselves free from the stain of society at that time. 
They're kind of like your homeschoolers, right? No, I'm just kidding. I like homeschoolers. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? So, but this is, one of, this is one of your political religious groups, and so their approach is to withdraw. Of course, Jesus doesn't fit into any of these categories. Jesus doesn't come in and affirm any of them. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't join the Essenes and withdraw. No, he infiltrates the culture, but he doesn't do it the way the Pharisees do it. The Pharisees frown on Jesus for hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and just kind of seeming to ignore their social standards. And then you have the zealots, no doubt the smallest of these four groups. The zealots are a religious and political group in the first century that desired to forcibly overthrow the Roman government. These are radical dudes. These are guys that wanted to take Israel back through violence. In fact, they became, some, some of them, some of the more radical zealots became known as dagger men. Because they would, they would literally insert themselves in, into towns and cities and stuff and look for the opportunity to stab or attempt to assassinate Roman officials or, or anybody influential uh, on the Roman side of things. And so they, would, they, were like clo- they, were, they were like these cloak and dagger guys that would sneak in and they would stab somebody a few times and then they would run and hide. These are the zealots. Now, not all the zealots did that, but you've got to understand that's the mentality. The mentality is this Roman Empire is the enemy. They're occupying our land, telling us how we should live. If we have to kill them to get them out of here, that's what we should do. In, in 66 AD, they were actually successful in taking back Jerusalem. There was an uprising that happened in 66, which is over 30 years after Jesus. This, is not, this would not have involved, uh, not likely involved this Simon, okay? But this same group takes back Jerusalem. They kick the Roman Empire out, which is a big deal. That's not something anybody could do. They actually forcibly force out the Roman Empire and they take back control of Jerusalem. Now it's fairly short-lived. It only lasts a couple of years. By 70 AD, the Roman Empire comes in and just wipes out the whole city of Jerusalem which changes Judaism forever. It's a huge, huge event in human history, and especially in the history of Judaism and the people of Israel. And this is all happens because of the work of the Essenes to, to fight against the, the Roman Empire. So, Simon the Zealot. I wanted you to just have that historical background to understand when Jesus called Simon the Zealot, he's calling somebody out of that group. Now, like any religious or political group, individual members of a group are going to vary in how much they kind of adopt the ideals and the practices of that group. I'm not suggesting that Simon the Zealot was an assassin. We don't know that. There's nothing in the scripture to suggest that. What we do know is that he was a part of a very radical group of men. And when you think about the fact that Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi, the tax collector, who was very friendly with the Roman government, who loved the Roman government because he was getting wealthy off of their way of doing things, to be one of his disciples. And then he calls somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum, this Simon the Zealot. This had to make for some pretty interesting fireside chats among Jesus' disciples. I mean, these guys, I mean, as far as we know, they they would get along, and there's no... 
There's n- nothing here to tell us that they constantly fought, but boy, did they come from opposite ends of the spectrum. And so, so here we are. Here we, we have Simon the Zealot in this long list of names here. Now let's, let's work back at two more verses. Let's go back 16 and 17. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now there's a lot of speculation, of course, why they were called the sons of thunder. We don't know a whole lot. I'm not going to join in that speculation. But I just want to point out that we see here in verses 16 and 17, three names that often get lumped together. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John formed what, what kind of becomes called the inner circle of Jesus. These three men get access to Jesus' life in a way that even the other 12 don't. And certainly in a way that, I mean, Jesus didn't just have 12 followers. You understand, there was a crowd of people that identified themselves as followers and disciples of Jesus. But they were not the 12 that Jesus chose. They were not the 12 that Jesus would personally invest in and pour his life into these men. But within the 12, there's these three, Peter, James, and John. We know of at least three incidences where Jesus takes those three aside apart from the other 12. One is when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only these three men accompany Jesus for that miracle. The next is the Mount of Transfiguration, where he takes these three men alone up on a mountaintop, and, and Moses and Elijah appear, and Jesus' figure is actually changed. That's why it's called the transfiguration. And they see this glorious sight. They see Jesus as he truly is. They see him unveiled. You understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, has a glory that existed in all eternity that, that a human frame could not possibly display. And Jesus takes these three aside and he lets them see his glory in a very unique and special way. And then the third time we see Jesus pull this, these three aside, this inner circle, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus goes to pray the night before his crucifixion. Now, I, it seems as though there were others that went with them, but when they get to a certain point, Jesus taps the, the, the three, and he says, you three, come with me. And there they go and they witness their Savior preparing himself for what would be the most significant event in human history, the crucifixion. So he gathers these, these three kind of as his inner circle. Peter becomes, uh, he becomes the most prominent leader in the early church after Jesus' ascension. He's the one that stands up and preaches the gospel at Pentecost. He has a lot of leadership in the church from this time forward. In fact, in fact he's, he's given the name Peter. His, his original name is Simon, but he's given the name Peter, which means rock, because of his confession in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, That's right, and it's my Father in heaven who's revealed this to you. And on this rock... I will build my church. And so he gives him the name Peter. And so Peter, Peter has a very important part. Of course, we have books in the New Testament named after Peter. That's because he wrote them. Um, and then 
church history or church tradition tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us, but tradition tells us that Peter was later crucified. But he didn't, want, he didn't consider himself worthy of dying the same death that his Lord did. And so at his request, he was crucified upside down. This, was a, this became a very committed man. John would write the Gospel of John. I'm still looking at the, the, the inner circle of these three men. John would write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And so a significant part of the New Testament written by one of these apostles here. James became the first apostle to be martyred. He was killed by Herod. The Bible tells us he was killed with a sword. We presume that was, means that he was beheaded for preaching the gospel. And so these men, in fact, all of the 12 except for John according to church history, would go on to be martyred. That means they would be killed, most of them, in very brutal fashion for preaching the gospel. These are the men that Jesus has chosen. These are his 12. They are no doubt a motley crew. They have many flaws and shortcomings. At the time of his choosing them, they are of virtually no influence in the world And that would change drastically. For it's through these 12 men that God would change the world. Through these 12, he would turn the world upside down. Jesus commits himself over the next couple of years to teach these men, to disciple them, to prepare them for leadership in the church. They will get to know him in ways that nobody else ever knew Jesus on the earth. They will see and witness things that nobody else had the opportunity to see and to witness. They would learn from his teaching. They would watch him give his life. They would witness his resurrection. They saw his ascension into heaven. And they were there at Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit that that Jesus promised would come next. But why? Why? You have to ask that question. Why? If Jesus wanted to say something to this world, why didn't he just write it down himself? If Jesus is going to choose these 12 men to be so close to him, why does he do this? Why does he want these 12 guys around him? Why doesn't he just, just, just free himself up to go and, and just go wherever he wants and to do whatever he wants and meet with everyone? Why commit himself to these 12? This passage, our passage today, tells us in verse 13. Okay, we're back to the beginning. We've worked ourselves the whole way back to the beginning now. In verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. In parentheses it says, whom he also named apostles. So that, here's why. Why does he call these 12 guys? So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I started today with some questions about how do we know the New Testament is the message that Jesus wants us to have. After all, Jesus didn't leave behind a Bible. What he left behind was 12 men, soon to be 11, 
and who, when Judas would go and, and commit suicide, but he would be replaced. He doesn't leave behind a Bible, though, is the point. He leaves behind these 12. And he names them apostles. Why does Jesus appoint apostles? Well, we have to ask the question, of course, what is an apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? Apostle simply means one who is sent out. One who is sent out. So Jesus, we see in verse 14, he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out. That's what apostle means, to be sent out. To do what? To preach and to have authority to cast out demons. What does it mean to be sent out? I'm thinking of things in our, in our world today that help us maybe understand what Jesus is appointing these men to. If you think of the idea of ambassadors, we have ambassadors a part of our, our modern-day political system. Ambassadors are people who are sent out on behalf of a country or a leader of a country. The leader, at least in our case, the leader selects ambassadors, people who are sent out with authority to represent the, the country and the leader that they come from. And so in theory, if you went to any of the ambassador or any of the embassies that we have that we host here in the United States for any of the various countries that have their embassies here, and you said to them, I would like to speak to your president or your leader or your king or your prime minister or, or who, whatever political system they have, I want to speak to the main guy. They would say, well, he's not here, but you can speak to the ambassador. And you would, you would argue, no, 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 I want to speak to the one who's in charge, the one who has the authority. And they would say, I assure you, the ambassador has the authority and, and, and understands the will and the wishes of our leader. He can, he can see to whatever it is that you need to speak to him about. If they were convinced you were important enough, they would let you see the ambassador. And you would be speaking to one who has the authority of the sending leader and of the sending nation. Someone who is sent to speak on and to handle the affairs of that nation on behalf of that leader. Because that person can't be in all places all the time, right? This is similar, let me emphasize similar to the role of the apostles. Jesus is sending them out with his authority. He's giving them the right to speak on his behalf. He's giving them the right to make decisions. Most importantly, he is giving them the right and the responsibility to communicate a message. And it is the message of the New Testament that he sends them. They go and preach that the kingdom of God has come just as Jesus preached. He has modeled this for them and, and he sends them out with authority to cast out demons. That's his way of showing the world, they have my authority. What you've seen me do, these guys are gonna do. You've seen me cast out demons. In fact, the other gospels would include in this authority, they had the authority to heal sicknesses and every disease. Now, we, we would all agree those require supernatural authority. That's not just something you can do in the flesh. 
You have to have authority. Well, Jesus had that authority. That's what he's been showing them. He's going from town to town. He's casting out demons. He's healing sick. He's even raising the dead. And he gives his 12 that same authority. And so they go out and do it. They go out and they they preach and they cast out demons and they heal people and they prove that they have his authority. The next thing on your map. The 12 apostles are given authority by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel message to the world after Jesus' departure from the earth. They're given authority by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel message. Is this starting to make a little bit of sense? I hope that it is. If I'm doing my job, this is starting to come together a little bit now. Why is it so important we have this list of these, the, the names of these 12 men? Because they are the ones that Jesus chose to take the message and to, to, he gives them his authority. He empowers them by the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel message into the world after Jesus leaves the earth. This is a very important step in the process because Jesus has instituted a new covenant He's made a new deal between God and man. The old covenant, which is what Old Testament means, it means the old covenant, the old deal between God and man was what it was. It was that you had to follow these rules, you offered these sacrifices on behalf of your sins, and that if you had faith in that process, you would be forgiven. And that's how, that's how God ordained for man to approach God. Jesus brings a new covenant a new deal, similar but very different. Now, instead of the relying on the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats to atone for sin, Jesus has once and for all atoned for sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has allowed His death to be the sacrifice for all eternity for the sins of man. This is the new covenant Jesus tells his disciples this at the Last Supper. This is a new covenant. And so we have the New Testament, the new covenant, the new deal between God and man. And his plan is to deliver this message, to deliver the details of the new covenant to the world through these 12 appointed apostles. He says in John 14 something very important, something very significant for us to understand. In John 14, verse 25, he says, And these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my place, he will teach you all things. Where did the apostles get their information? Where did they come up with what they wrote in the New Testament? What Jesus is telling us in John 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And so Jesus, for three years, teaches them, but he doesn't expect them to remember that on their own. I can't remember what I learned three weeks ago, let alone three years ago. So he sends them the Holy Spirit who will remind them and teach them all things. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. 
because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why do we believe the apostles' message? Because Jesus said beforehand he was going to do this. He said before the New Testament was written that he was going to send them out with this message, that the Holy Spirit would teach them and bring to remembrance all that he has said to them. Have you ever thought, well, how did they remember all these things that Jesus did and said? Were they writing them down as it happened? Well, here's the answer, is that the Holy Spirit would remind them. And now if that sounds unusual or shocking to you, that's the way the whole Old Testament was written as well. That the Holy Spirit inspires. The Holy Spirit works through human authors to give to us the Word of God. And so he tells them the Holy Spirit is coming. He'll teach you. He'll bring to remembrance the things that I have said to you. And and he will give you this message. And to make sure that people know that's real to make sure that people know you're not just making that up. Because anybody could say that. Anybody could stand up after Jesus is gone and say, well, Jesus told me he was going to give me the gospel message to share with you all. And they could say whatever they want. But to make sure that people understood that this message was coming from Jesus, he gives them authority. And he gives them a, a unique authority to cast out demons and to heal people of every sickness. These miracles existed to validate their message. It's the same reason Jesus did miracles, to validate what he was saying was true. And so he gives that authority to the apostles. Okay, let me try to move quickly through a couple more things. What about today? Because I'm talking about apostles, and and some people still use that term today. Some people refer to themselves or their leaders as apostles. Well, if this is the ministry of the apostles, it should be noted that this ministry of making known what it means to live under the new covenant was completed in the first century. This particular ministry, the ministry of now taking the gospel and and translating it into life, what does this mean for us that Jesus instituted this new covenant? What does it mean that we now live as believers in Christ? That ministry was completed in the first century. That's because Jude says, Jude reminds us that the faith, in Jude 3, the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. The gospel message is not evolving. There's nothing new being added. It is complete. God has made known everything we need to know for Christian living in the New Testament. There is no need for further revelation. What he has already revealed will get us through to the return of Christ and on into eternity. We have no need for further revelation. So, but there is, to make things a little bit confusing here, there is an apostolic ministry in the New Testament that is a little bit different than what these 12 did. But that ministry could probably best be understood as what we refer to today as just missionary ministry. It's the ministry of going into places where the gospel is not and and preaching and teaching the gospel, teaching people what it means to live as Christians. Let me just say real quickly, if you hear somebody refer to themselves as an apostle, use a ton of caution. And I mean a ton of caution. Because there are people today, though most 
Christian circles don't use this phrase to refer to their leaders. There are people today who use that term, and most of them are whack. Most of them are just out of their mind. I'm not saying all of them. I don't believe that all of them are. But if you hear somebody saying, Apostle so-and-so, or something like that, use a ton of caution. And then ask yourself, be discerning, ask yourself, what do they mean by apostle? Because there's probably one of two things. One could be that they mean somebody who has special revelation, somebody who has, like those 12, the ability to work miracles. If, If that is the case, then you don't walk, you run away from them. You need to stay away from that kind of teaching. That is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 11 as false apostles. He, he calls them deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. But there are some who use that term to refer to missionary type work or church planning type work. And I would, just, I would still be cautious there, but you're, you, you, there's probably some room to use that kind of language there. We don't use this language here at Harvest. We don't refer to anybody as an apostle. Uh, if we ever start referring to somebody as apostle, dibs, I want to be, be Apostle Fred. I'm just calling dibs. But we don't use that, we don't use that lingo here, okay? These 12, let me, let me just tell you, uh, there were criteria that were met. One was that they were personally witnessed the resurrected Christ. That was an important criteria, that they spent time with Jesus, that they were taught the message from Jesus himself. Two, that they were explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. And three, that they were able to perform signs and wonders to validate their message. Okay, so the next thing on your map, and it's a little redundant, but I knew I was going to spend a lot of time on this this weekend. And so I wanted to make sure, and I'm trying to communicate something that's sort of complex and so it's a little redundant in the next, the next statement, but let me, let me read this and you can fill in the blanks. The office of apostle was an office instituted by Jesus to communicate the message and details of the new covenant, which he instituted with his death and resurrection, through preaching and through the writing of the New Testament. Of course, validated by signs and wonders, okay? So that's the apostles. When Jesus chooses 12 and he names them apostles, that's what he's doing. This should give us great confidence in the Bible. This should inspire devotion to the New Testament. This should, this should, this should be a real confidence booster for you that when you read the New Testament, you're reading what Jesus wanted you to hear. You're reading the Word of God Because he had a plan and he saw it through the whole way to the end. When he left the earth, he sent the Holy Spirit to make sure it got done right. To make sure that every word was the words that he wanted us to have. And because of this, in Acts 2, we read that the early church, Acts 2 verse 42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Praise God. That is exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. Now, let me give you some practical application. In addition to confidence, when you read the Bible, I want to give you some practical application. Let me read verse 14 again and just comment on another piece of this passage. It says, And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, 
so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. The last thing on your map, Jesus calls these men to two important things. One, to be with him. And two, to minister for him. To be with him and to minister for him. This is an excellent way for us to think of the Christian life. There are two very important components to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, to be a believer in Christ. One, be with him. Two, minister for him. And notice that these two things go very well together. You can't hardly minister well for him if you don't spend time with him. And if you spend time with him, you will be compelled to minister for him. And so a couple questions that beg to be answered as I close. The first is, how is your relationship with Jesus? Lest we make Christianity just about a bunch of things we believe to be true. Lest we make Christianity about having the right doctrine or having all of your your thoughts in order about Jesus or even about this stuff that we're talking about here today. Lest we forget that Jesus is not hiring employees to do his work. He is calling brothers and sisters into the family of God. Let's remind ourselves that Christianity is more than a religion, it's a relationship. Jesus calls you to himself. Just like he called these men to, to come away from everything else that was important in their lives up prior to meeting him, he calls them out of that and he calls them to himself. And he spends time with them and they get to know each other in a, in a, in a human and divine way. You need to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. It's not just about what you think. It's about what you feel and how you respond to his call on your life. It's about having an intimate relationship with Jesus. And relationships require time together. Relationships require communication with one another. Relationship requires opening yourself up to him and being real and being honest with him. Of course, we can do this through prayer, reading the scriptures, through time spent alone with God. When was the last time you, took, you just took some time alone with God and you just communicated with him or you read his word or you, or you just, just spent time dwelling on what he's done in your life? How is your relationship with Jesus? Let me just say, if, you need, if you're not sure how to do this, if I'm saying things that sound sort of foreign to you, spend time alone with God, how do you do that? There's, there's a lot of great resources out there. In fact, ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance is apathy. If you really want to know how to spend time with God, it's very easy to figure out. In fact, I would invite you, I read recently an article by, by Mark Altrogi on this, on how to spend time alone with the Lord. That I would love to share with every one of you. It's a fantastic article that has some really simple and practical applications to it. If you reach out to me this week, you can email me or, or Facebook me or whatever. I'd be happy to share that article with you and maybe even talk a little bit about what it would look like 
to spend some time alone with God. Don't let ignorance stop you from the relationship that God created you to have with himself. And then the next question, has your relationship with the Lord propelled you into some kind of gospel ministry? Jesus calls them to be with him and to minister for him. If you're spending time with Jesus, I, it's assumed that that's going to propel you into some kind of gospel ministry. And so, has it done that? Has Christianity, has your faith, has your relationship with Jesus just been about going to church or just been about spending time alone with him? If so, you may have missed an important point here. Remember, as James reminded us in the last sermon series, that faith without works is dead. He calls you to work. He calls you to do something, to minister, to share the gospel in some way, serve your church, reach your community, do something related to gospel ministry. These men would leave home, face opposition from their own people on a continual basis, They would be martyred, brutally martyred, ISIS-style death for the ministry of the gospel. How does your present level of commitment to gospel ministry compare to that? (laughs) What are you going to say to Peter, James, and John when you're trading ministry stories in heaven? (laughs) Let your relationship, your time alone with Jesus be the fuel that feeds gospel ministry in your life. I'm not suggesting that we need to be perfect, nor that they were. But most of us have left plenty of room for growth in these areas in spending time with the Lord and doing ministry for Him. And so I want to challenge you today to take action to commit yourself to spending time with him and to doing ministry for him. And I want to invite you to do that right now. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.